Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Quick history lesson. Beth Ann Hardison reached legend status early in her modeling career when she walked the now infamous Battle of Versailles runway in November of 1973. The fashion show, which was launched as a benefit to help restore Marie Antoinette's stomping ground to its former glory, pitted French designers against Americans, the couturiers against the nouveau classics. It was the ultimate in drama by design, complete with theatrical sets and star-studded audiences flown in straight from Hollywood a spectacle that tilted the balance of power in the fashion world toward the blossoming New York City scene. But the person who turned most heads that day was Hardison, who became one of the first black models to walk a European runway, changing the game right then and there. Flash forward to 2012, when documentarian Timothy Greenfield Sanders released his quietly electrifying film About Face, Supermodels Then and Now, which centered around the model elites of the 20th century who went on the record with the harsh truths about aging in their respective industry. The film covered a lot of important ground, but Bethann made sure the race conversation stayed central, calling for designers to cast models across the racial spectrum, channeling her energy into the diversity advocacy agency, Black Girls Coalition, and launching the careers of other notable supermodels. Back in 1973, Bethann Hardison was the face of a moment, but today she's so much more than that. She is the force of a movement. Beth Ann Hardison, it is such an enormous honor to have you here on Unstyled. I, I can't even believe I'm looking at you right I'm now. I'm so happy to meet you because it's a, you know it's interesting to meet women who start things. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you've started many things, actually. Yeah. Because I think our audience of listeners may not know, tell us about the Battle of Versailles. Oh, Versailles. You know, it's interesting how something that was dormant for so many years has become notable to others now because... You know, nobody thought about it after a couple of years after we came home. I mean, it was like nobody knew about it. And then the, the Metropolitan Museum, just about four years ago, I believe, learned and wanted to recognize the girls who had been there. And any of the designers that were left, and it was only two, and that was Oscar De La Renta and Stephen Burroughs, and then it was the girls. So they think, because it was the diversity division of the Metropolitan Museum, they focused on the girls of color because they knew that that was a pivotal point in the industry for international it wasn't for a national. That's why this whole thing that I do with racial diversity, it's not because, you know, it's the first time around. If it was the first time around, I probably wouldn't even give a shit. But it's because of the fact that it is something we've always had. So yes. when we got a race, that's where it's not cool. Because I know what they bring to the table. I know what a good model brings to the table, no matter what color she is. So when the Metropolitan Museum recognized us and gave us that wonderful luncheon at the Temple d'Endur, it was amazing because it was all over the news at night. And then this woman, Deborah Draper, she created this documentary. That brought more news about it. And then Robin Gibbon writes a book about it, uses the basis of it, you know. But how and old were you when it happened? I don't remember how old, because I don't know how old I am now. But the fact of it is, is I that... Love that. <laughs> I wish I, I didn't know how old I was. <laughs> I, w- I had to be... You were living in New York. I'm born and raised in New York. Mm-hmm. Bed-Stuy, uh, right? It wasn't Bed-Stuy then. It was Bed-Stuy then. And, uh, and I then moved to the city... Manhattan when I was 19 mm-hmm. to live with my uncle, who's an art director at J. Walter Thompson. I think it must have been in my late 20s 
because I worked in the garment district, and then I modeled with the job. I worked for Stephen Burroughs. I ran the design studio for him, and I was his assistant. The work that you've been doing, helping to promote not just awareness, but real change and inclusivity and diversity in the fashion industry. When did you first start to find this as like an opportunity that you really wanted to focus on as a person who had influence in the fashion industry? For me, it started in like 1981 or two or three or four or five, six. When I started working at Click Models, I think you start noticing, you start noticing little things. Just to be clear, there were always people of color in the industry. But I think what happened is when I was working there as a model, I mean, as an agent, I could sort of hear how things were. Like, you know, when we had Talisa Soto at the time, the booking editor at Vogue, which she said, oh, Bethany, don't worry, I can, I can, you can, you can tell me. What's the nationality? Because they were booking her for something. What's the nationality of Talisa? And I was so proud <laughs> to say she's Puerto, Puerto Rican. Rican. And they said, no, 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 what, what's her nationality? Like they I'm just, sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> she, just, she just wanted to erase what I had said. So I said, she's Puerto Rican. She said, oh, no, 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 no. Like, like she wasn't accepting what I had said. That wasn't a good enough answer. She, they wanted to be more exotic than that. Meanwhile, there's always been models of color, you know, whether it be for all advertising when it was black, uh, black beauty or, you know, via DeVore. There was always supplying the, the marketplace. So it was not something rare. Even when I was, even on 7th Avenue, you saw the girls of color whether it be, you know, Mosella Roberts or Jane Shang or Renee Hunter, they were girls who fit and did shows for... So it wasn't so, like, unbelievable. For me to fit in was kind of odd because I was the next wave and there was a lot of resistance because I was very skinny, big eyes, short, short, short hair. And I was such a different look for what was going on then. But in the end of the day, it was still happening. So as we moved through and we go through the 80s and then all the girls that start to work and then I started my model agency in 84 and you start seeing all the girls coming around, I, truly girls start to work. And that's what made us start the Black Girls Coalition was just basically just for me to celebrate how many girls were actually were working. They had to be editorialized and they weren't being editorialized in Hearst magazines. And thank God for Regis Panez who really threw the competition into a monkey wrench because he came from Paris and he started L here. And he was putting girls of color on his magazine like it was nothing to it, like it was ebony. He didn't think twice about it. That forced the hand of Vogue, that forced the hand of Condé Nast, all hers. And that was in the 80s. And Naomi had come along, too. She was like the supermodel of that moment. And that's where those girls were super, because they were just everywhere, and everyone knew them. That had never happened before. These girls they call supermodels today, it's not true. It's not true. You barely can remember who they are. But those girls really were. That was the establishment of that. That was a culturally defining period in my life when all of those girls, like Linda and oh, yeah. Naomi and Christy, I mean, I can literally name them all. Yeah. Helena Christensen. It was like this group of Tatiana, them. They were like, they yeah. were like superheroes. Yeah, yeah, they really were. They, they, really were. <laughs> they were. Tatiana Petitz. That's right. <laughs> oh, she was. I know they were all. And then also Claudia Schiffer. We can't That's forget right. Claudia yeah, Schiffer. Yeah, no, the, the girls, it was a great thing that happened in that time frame. All the vibe of that was great, you know. When you start seeing girls coming along, more girls of color, then it became like, wow, because I thought maybe they would never work. Well, I had a white model agency, but because I was of color, the white agencies would find a black girl and just said, you should go to Beth Ann Management because I was of color. But I didn't take a black girl because she was black. I took a black girl if she was good or boy. So the end of the day, there were people who were then selling, and I couldn't take but so many because I, you know, I had a small company and a small amount of people. But Eventually, they began to work, and it was a great moment. I mean, it was a great, from 80, say, from 87 to 96, truly was great. Well, then it started to, the girls sort of grew up, and the wave didn't come next. 
So it sounds like there's a, been a cyclical nature to either attention to diversity or maybe like this sort of interest in, in diversity in the fashion industry. What do you think? It was like, you know, you had to sort of like help motivate the thinking because I worked for a lot of these designers myself in some way or capacity, you know, whether it had been Perry Ellis or Calvin Klein. And then because I'm now in the seat of a model manager, I basically, you know, because of my nature too, I'm, I'm someone who tap you on the shoulder, so to speak, and say, you know, you know what you just said to me was kind of racist, right? You have to understand how that, I know that's not your intention. You had to educate people along with Brides Magazine. I had, thank goodness, I had a white model agency with good ethnic kids in it. But Brides Magazine always booked this one girl I had, was a beautiful brunette girl. And one day I just, you know, I had so many good kids. I said, don't you ever book, book black girls? You do know they get married too, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> You have to say things so people can think because in the end of the day, they're, they're living with an ignorance. They're not living because they're really racist. Do you think it's fear? No, it's just, it's just the way things start going. And once it starts rolling down a certain road, everybody, you know, remember, it's, a, it's just the nature of the goods. So in the end of the day, they just didn't recognize. So when you say it to the, the, the bride's man, they say, oh, Bethann, of course, of course we know they get married. I said, well, you don't reflect it. You know, and I get, and the reason why it could happen easily for me, because everyone liked me, everyone respect me. I never came aggressively. I just say things that makes them think, "Wow, I never even thought of it like that." I would talk to Calvin's partner Barry Schwartz. He says, "How could you ever say that?" You know, they call me up and they say, "Bethann, we want you to find us a great black girl." And I said, "Well, how many? Well, how many girls are you using?" Uh, Thirty-five. And I said, "And you, you? How many black? Well, we want you to find us find us a great one." And I said, you want me to get you one black girl and you're going to use 35? Come on. Do you know how that sounds? What does it sound like? And then you have to take them down the road. It's not a conscious racism, but it is the results of it is that. If you can have 35 white girls in a show and you're going to ask me to find, but I thought you'd be happy. Well, I am happy that you're going to, that you asked me, but we got to broaden that stroke a little bit. That's just checking a box. It got that way. And then when they start to realize they need a dark, good, good girl. But it had fallen to that. It wasn't like that before because the runway girls, half of them were of color. But then when it changed and runway and print became a division that began to merge and print. And then Calvin was the one, as always, he's such a brilliant marketer too. He was the one who decided to put the print girl on the runway. They couldn't walk, but he wanted the editor to recognize the girl in the clothes so they could see it editorially. That was marketing, and that changed everything. That closed down the runway division. So there were agencies that only did runway, so it changed things. And once you do that, the girls that's in the magazines are all white, primarily, and that's what changed. But slowly... At that time. Yeah. Tell me about the Black Girls Coalition. Well, that was something that was really started to celebrate the girls that were working. There were so many. And and nothing like that existed at the time. Oh, no, nothing, definitely not. Because, first of all, there was no Beth Ann Hardison before there was Beth Ann Hardison. It wasn't like, you know, I had someone I could go talk to or two that looked like me that, you know, was doing similar things Who I did. Who did you talk to? Well, sometimes Iman and Naomi and then Barack. <laughs> but when it came down to, like, the coalition, I just... Iman was going up for a film. She was no longer modeling, and, and she didn't get the film, and she was so down, and we went to dinner that night. And just to pick her up, I said, I got a great idea. And she always loved my ideas. I got a great idea. 
what is the idea? And I told her about it. I can't it. imagine why. And then she just got so excited. So we, you know, once I told her about it, then we had to do it. So I did this, we did this celebration of girls. And at the time, homelessness was running rampant in our city, and I wanted to benefit the homeless children. They were double victimized because their parents became homeless. They had to live in shelters. And I wanted to find all the small groups, not big corporations, but the little people who were doing great things for homelessness. And we did that, and we raised consciousness in the city, and we did these parties. So many people came. I was so shocked that we were so successful at them. Keith Aaron would give us paintings, and we would go around and pretty much get barely any money for them, but it was the consciousness that we were raising. And then we'd get money that these little companies never, no one gave them anything. So if it gave them $5,000 each one, we always found three charities. It was the best thing. And then until 1996, we went up against the advertising industry, commercial advertising industry, for not reflecting their consumer. That was the last thing the coalition did. So 1996, I went out. Of, I also closed Beth Ann Management, the model agency. And then I went to Mexico and just cooled out for a while. But interesting thing enough is that it started to change our industry. All of a sudden, the girl of color started to disappear from 96. It was up until 2000 that Naomi started calling me and saying, you got to do something. It's really getting very scarce. Was she experiencing that herself? Well, she was experiencing by looking. Herself, she's still... She was still very active. Yeah, but she could see what was happening. Well, what do you think was happening just sort of culturally in the media industry or what was what was going on? First, a few things happened. We never had casting directors in our industry before with designers. That changed. And then Eastern Europe opened up. So many of the girls started coming from Eastern Europe and they, people started scouting Eastern Europe. It changed. It started bringing a different element of a model in. That's where it started to change. And the girl who was of color wasn't being sought after anymore or looked for so that those girls were not being replaced, the ones who were growing up, like which were replacing Karen Alexander or, you know, or Stephanie Roberts. <laughs> you know, there were different girls who were so well-known, Beverly Peel. These were, there were so many girls that were, that were known, but they started to, you know, go on with their life and they weren't being replaced. People start saying you need to really, you know, see what's going on. I come back into the industry. Kim Heistrader from Paper Magazine, when I went, came back one time, she told me that I was the reason why it had all changed and I need to take responsibility. I said, please don't tell me that. I want to go rest. So what did you do? So it took me a while because I kept thinking, okay, I will do it. I'll have a talk. I'll just figure something out. And by 2001, 2003, I just kept saying, oh, God, I got to really do something. Not until 2007, I held the first press conference about the lack of racial diversity in the industry for the fashion model. And I invited model agents, editors, some models. Naomi flew in from London. Iman came. Leah Kabidi held it in the Bryant Park Media Room uh, Auditorium. And it was about about 90 people and had a great talk. I just sat there by myself and told them everything I thought. That hit Women's Wear Daily, New York Times, and I went to the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, and I held a bigger, huger. It was well over 275 people in an auditorium, and they had to use their separate room to add the people who couldn't see it or be in the room. And I did four town halls, and that started to change. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Things. But then it would slip back. 
So Edward and Phil were saying to me, he said, we got to really do something again. You need to do something. <laughs> so here I go again. And then, okay, and we start to, I start to watch. Because it takes a lot of energy to do what I do. In 2007, when I did that first press conference, they were writing to the model agencies, no blacks, no ethnics, telling them before you even send a girl to us, this is what the casting directors were saying, no blacks, no ethnics. What year is this? 2007. No one saw that as discrimination at the time. No, it's because the great thing about, the the good news and the bad news about our industry, we talk in identity. We talk about what someone is when we book them. We recognize it because that's what you do. You say, we want redheads. We don't want redheads. More subjective. We want, we, we're, we're, we're very specific about what someone should look like. Yeah, but you can't eliminate entire races of people. Well, it happens. I mean, it happens. When people think <laughs> it's theirs, because it, it, it went for a while where people began to believe this is normal. But casting directors changed everything. I mean, I'm not a big fan, as everybody will know. Everybody knows me say this all the time. I'm not a big fan. It used to be just a designer and his team that used to decide who was going to be. And the great thing, that's how you got muses. It was quite different. But then when outside people start deciding, they start deciding what they should look like. And then they had stylists. Oh, it's all this. These are all outside people being hired. It's just, it brought a whole different thing to the industry. And so I had to say to the model agencies, if they interviewed me privately, they'd say, who do you blame for this? And I'd say, the model agencies. But if I was in a public forum, I never said that. If it was like loud like now or at my town hall meetings, I never said it. But personally, I did feel that way because I felt like the model agencies, we have to be gangster. The whole point of being someone like that, you go, you, you educate because the model industry is not the fashion industry. We service the fashion industry. But now it's gotten all convoluted and everybody thinks they're in fashion. Even if they sew a button on a shirt, I'm in fashion. They're not. So it's changed a lot. So my point was that you had to sort of like you tell them who you have to represent. You show them. You go out and get the work done. It's like an artist. You find the best of the best. Don't let them tell you. At that moment, never again since that town hall meeting did they ever say, no blacks, no ethnic. Because all the press started saying, is the industry really racist? <laughs> yeah, once is that again. the headline? Yeah, they did. But I want to say something, especially with the arrival of Edward Enenfall at um, British Vogue. The thing that finally, at least in my position as an editor of a media company with many other editors, the responsibility comes from a lot of different vantage points. It doesn't just come from one aspect of, you know, the designers or the modeling agencies or the editors. It comes from everyone, you know, to prioritize or at least to to make this an important point of education, making sure that the dialogue is there, making sure that it's just constantly part of the conversation. And I think that there's a lot of blame being passed around when we start to sort of assess like which shows actually did the best job and it's not just about racial diversity it's about body diversity now there's a lot of there's around age diversity what I'm trying to say is I really appreciate the fact that you come at it from a point of wanting to educate people because then they you know have the tools to actually make better decisions and then change really is more enduring do you agree? I agree. I agree. I, I do really do believe, you know, Franco used to say to me, you know, all the time, you know, because everybody thinks anybody who's on the other side of the coin thinks it's racism. I never think either that it's necessarily that the industry is racist. And Franco used to say all the time, but it's not, Bethan. Not, it's not. It's because they're, they they forget. Now, I just love she, the way she say that. But the fact is, I don't think it either. I think it's worse. I think it's ignorance. Because if it's racist, I can live with that. I've always said that. I'm not mad at someone who doesn't want black people or Asian people or green people or yellow people. 
in their collections. That, no problem. Not in advertising. If you say to me, look, back off. I just don't like black people. You know what? I'd walk away, pick up my tools, and go to the next guy. It's the next guy who basically does it totally out of like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Those are the guys. It's a funny I'm, hand gesture happening here that you can't see, but it's funny. <laughs> but it's just that they—they—they're just out of it. They're functioning out of total ignorance because they don't—they're not committed to uh, being a, someone who's against someone in their race. That's when you have to sort of help them understand how, if you just continue to do something where everything in you, that you you hire or you select is white, then that's the results of it, whether it's your intention or not. Let's shift gears a little bit. I have been a big fan of yours for a really long time, but I have to say, like, genuinely, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, like, fell in love with you in About Face. I love that documentary so much. I recommend it to so many friends. I think it's also just to be in my 40s now. I just I just found it really satisfying in a lot of ways. You're perfect in it because you talk so frankly about aging and about having your own opinions about what it's like to age in the fashion industry and kind of in the public eye. But tell me what it was like to, to work on that film. Making that film was wonderful because he had a group of girls that he had to shoot one day, and it, he just came up with the idea that this could be a film because they all came together. They were girls of the past, and he had to shoot them. And that he added me in because he really felt that I would add something. But he said it was the most interesting thing because I was the one that they had the longest interview with. They didn't want to stop the film. He, he just kept going and going and going. I felt that way. Yeah. There's like an earthiness to your to your contribution. It was just like it was... It was substantial. Yeah, it was it was it was a gritty in a good way, you know. And I love, I had a couple of favorites in that film too. For me, it was Jerry because I grew up with Jerry, and she and I were very close when we were younger. I love her story that she tells about being discovered when she's yeah. wearing her little crocheted bikini in South of France. Yeah. Her mom, or she had got into an accident or something, and she got an insurance payout, and she's like, she sent her to she sent her to the South of France to get discovered. Yes, yeah, that's it. Go ahead. And then uh, Isabella is always one of my favorites, uh, Rossellini. No, I, I'm glad you like that film. I need to see it again because I only saw it the one time when he premiered it, but I need to see it again too. You're working on a film called Invisible Beauty. It started out being about the industry and its, and its lack of diversity. And I used three girls at the time to help tell the story. I was in it, but very lightly. Now the film has changed and the film is a, tells my story about the journey of this woman who goes through what she does to get the, an industry to recognize racial diversity for the fashion model and her life, who she is. That's what this, the film is about now. So it's autobiographical. In a way. It, well, yes, it is. It is. And it, it is a documentary. It is a documentary. What do you think that movie introduces, or at least sort of like what kind of conversation you think it elevates about beauty standards, you know, for, especially for young women, especially now in terms of social media and this insatiable pursuit of youth and, and perfection. I grew up with it. It was just natural. I mean, you just saw it. You lived with it. People moved on. People looked great, everyone. But I guess because everything's gotten so broad because we have we have such an uh, um, entry into uh, uh, industries that makes reflects what people should think. And see, I didn't, we didn't grow up like that. Carol Lindley was the first person I discovered, you know, as a model, I mean, as a person, entity, and Seventeen Magazine. I was nine years old, and I told my mother, I have to have it. That girl inspired me. She was blonde, blue-eyed, cherub cheeks, 
she turned it, she eventually became an actress. But she was, that was the cover of Seventeen Magazine practically every month. I was crazy for this girl. But then I realized how nowadays people look for images of themselves so they can feel better about themselves. And they, you hear it all the time, especially people of 40s. You hear it. You say, they, uh, 30s, you know, you know, when I saw Naomi or this one or that one in the magazines, I felt like I, too, it reflected me. I never had that. I, ne- I never needed to. You know who my model was on the cover of Seventeen when I was growing up? Who? Whitney Houston. Oh, uh, yeah. But I used to represent Whitney. She was my she was my girl when when my when that magazine showed up in my mailbox, and let me tell you, I was waiting at that mailbox for the, when that issue would show up every month, and when she, I couldn't wait to see if she was going to be on the cover. It was so <laughs> it's a good cover. She had one. She had one particular good cover. I, I see it right now. Yeah, she yeah, was. True. She was really life changing for me back in the day, and that's what I'm saying. Because she also looked different. That's right, and and that's what it's saying. When you start seeing images that are different, then you start to decide. But my mother didn't even have magazines in the house. So, I mean, it wasn't like, we, you know, everything, the magazine was on the street, you know? So it was interesting for me because when I told this girl who's right, helping me write my proposal, she was so shocked by it when I said Carolyn and she found a picture of me. She said, really? I mean, it's the opposite. But the good news about all of that is that, you know, you think about age and, and time. And it, if another person tells me how great my skin is, or even I look so good for this age, or this one looks so good. And I keep thinking, but what are you supposed to look like at that age? Well, you really have amazing skin, though. I did put something on before I came, but it's just moisturizer. And people say, well, you're so lucky, because look at you. Well, you know, it's never been my thought. And I've, I never liked makeup. I never cared about any of those things. I really am a tomboy. I'm a skinny white boy inside, because I, I love everything about board sports, whether it be snowboarding, skateboarding, <laughs> surfing. You know, to me, I'm not who I am anyway, what I look like. I'm somebody else in spirit. The idea of, of people recognizing how people look and how good they look for their age is always amazing to me. That's how you should look at that age to me. On the topic of aging, Allure magazine recently said it would no longer be using the phrase anti-aging. It moves the attention away from aging and puts it on just looking good and feeling good. It shouldn't have anything to do with aging. It shouldn't have anything to do with being young or not young. Because I think that, at least in my own personal experience, how I look is always a reflection of what's going on in my life. I can see it. And there's no amount of, you know, sort of under eye concealer or Botox that's going <laughs> to change that. There isn't. It's it's also unkind and unfair to stigmatize women that care about that more. I think that everyone should be able to care about it as much as they want to. I do, to. too. I do, too. But I do love the beauty of age. I do love the wisdom of age. I do love, and I don't think you could have but so much wisdom if you're so caring about your physicality. I don't think it's possible that you could really care so deeply about how to tell some young person how to get across a river. You know, if you're so busy worrying about if this is getting a little bit more wrinkly, <laughs> I just don't know where that wisdom comes from. The point of it is, is that it is good that, you know, we do have that, that clock that ticks because I think it's very important that we should recognize that we didn't come here to live. We came here to die. And I know that sounds very morbid and all that, but it isn't. That's what you have to keep looking at. That's the one thing that I was always glad. I had my grandmother and my father between the two individual people who basically believed in death. And that's a great thing to grow up knowing that that's what you're going to do. So live the life while you have it and not worry about, you know, oh, try not to die. 
because that's the inevitable thing. Coming. It's going to happen. You've had a really, really long career that's obviously still really busy. What do you think you're the most proud of? That the spirits let me have my son. Um, and I, I like what he's done in his life. Did you call them the spirits? Yeah, the spirits let me to have them because believe me, I, I wasn't trying. I was 18 years old and I wasn't trying to have a child. But in the end of the day, the spirits let me have them because I would have done anything to stop it. I think uh, I'm very proud of Beth Ann Management because that was not meant to be mine. And I'm and all the people, a lot of people you know, made me do it. They made sure that I got it done. And this girl said the name of my book should be They Pushed Me to Do It, because I say that a lot about a lot of different things that's happened in my life. I got pushed to do things because I didn't want to. And I love, you know, discovering Tyson Beckford, <laughs> you know, and that he has a wonderful, handsome career. A huge career. And I like, you know, being the sage to Naomi Campbell or Iman or any of the girls that have really been someone, too, that's always came to me when they needed I have, I'm very blessed for the love that I have in my life, for the people who care for me. And I'm very proud of myself in many ways, too. And I'm very glad that I, I'm talking to you today and talking to you about real stuff, you know. And I'm glad that you're inspired. I am so grateful to have you here. And I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on Unstyled. And it's just a, an enormous pleasure and just joy to even meet you and talk to you. Thank you so much, Christine. I really mean it. Thank you, Beth Ann. I hope you're inspired after hearing Beth Ann's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Elizabeth Kiefer. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday with feminist author and digital entrepreneur Naomi Wolf on decoding the new beauty myths, along with mobilizing a new generation of activists. I want to tell you about a podcast we think you may like called The Nod. Here, the show's hosts, Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings, explore the beautiful, complicated dimensions of black life. And after listening to our interview with diversity activist Beth Ann Hardison, who shot to superstardom on the runway of the infamous Battle of Versailles, we recommend checking out their episode, Chitlins at Bergdorf's, for even more conversation about this epic fashion show that put American fashion designers on the map in 1973. You can find The Knot on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.